Well, I want us to begin this morning by just praying to the Lord. Let's bow once again. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. What a great joy it is to be here. Lord, this is our real family. We are acquainted physically with others and families biologically here on this earth, but our real family is in the glory with you. And so we are grateful for all those who are part of it. We're grateful to be together, to join together and worship together and study your word together. Use it in our lives, I pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you'd take your Bibles this morning and turn with them or in them with me to the book of Colossians. We are once again returning there. We find ourselves in chapter 2 once again, and I want us to focus our attention this morning on verses 16 through 23. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, we'll begin by just reading this for us. The Apostle Paul says to the believers in Colossae, Therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. So if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle and do not taste and do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. <clears throat> Several years ago, there was an article written in a magazine entitled, The Startling Beliefs of Future Ministers. <clears throat> the Startling Beliefs of Future Ministers it included the results of a survey that had been taken among several of the major seminaries of the day of those who were in the process of training for ministry. And these are some of the questions that they were asked to answer and the percentages at which they gave their answer. The first one was, do you believe in a physical resurrection? 54% said no. Do you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? 56% said no. Do you believe in a literal heaven and hell? 71% said no. Well, do you believe that man is separated from God by birth because of sin? Shockingly, 98% either said no, or they weren't concerned with that doctrine. Do you believe in the second coming of Christ? 99% said no. 
Do you believe in the deity of Christ? 89% said no. In case you were wondering, that article was found in the 1961 Red Book magazine edition. And sadly, those statistics have only gotten worse over the years. Why would men who are studying for the ministry not believe such clear biblical truths? Why, why would they be taken down the road of outright falsity? Outright heresy? Well, the only answer to that question is that they were going that direction because of the false teaching under which they were studying. The reason that they would and could believe such blatant lies about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is simply because they had been deceived. They had been deceived, probably in a great way. Many of them weren't even saved. But if they were saved, they had been taken captive by the philosophy of men. They had been taken captive through the traditions of men. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, has established beyond a shadow of a doubt that the teaching of those who were troubling the believers in Colossae, their teaching was entirely false. And we have been looking at this over the last several Lord's Days as we have been studying this whole topic on the following on the, on the shoes of what we heard in Jude and apostasy being so rampant in the church. And we've been doing that in order that we might be equipped to recognize deception when it's there, when we hear it. And then from that, begin to understand for ourselves how it's remedied. How is deception remedied? And you remember that Paul began his warning back in verse 8. He said that we should see to it that no one takes us captive. This is the beginning of the mark of deception, as we have called it. Right? We are, we are call, we're calling it that because we are asking the question, what makes deception deception? What are the distinguishing marks of deception? And in verses 8 through 23 of chapter 2, we are hearing Paul give us the answer, and he's giving us the answer by breaking it down into two primary areas. The first was the, the falsity of the teaching itself. In other words, the teaching itself is false, and each one of us individually, we have a personal responsibility as Christians as those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, who have faith in Jesus Christ, who are, in fact, blessed by God in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, the true Christian, we have a personal responsibility in and of ourselves to not be taken hostage by the teaching that is deceptive, by the teaching that will leave us where we would be like those that I just read about in that statistical report from 1961 would be on a road to nowhere. 
denying the truth of Scripture about Christ and buying into the traditions of men. We have a commanded responsibility individually to guard ourselves against teaching that is contrary to Scripture. The origin of that kind of teaching is rooted, Paul says, in the traditions of men. In the traditions of men. It is not divine teaching. It is not of God at all. At its root, it denies the deity of Jesus Christ, even in subtle ways that they might claim to believe in the deity of Christ. It undermines that. It denies the absolute authority of Christ, as we saw in verses 9 and 10. And it denies that in Christ we are, as believers, complete. That we are complete in Christ and we need nothing else for salvation. That Christ is sufficient. And so it's an inevitable outcome that if the teaching is false, if teaching is false, if it is contrary to Christ in even subtle ways, then the practice that is carried out because of the teaching will also be false. And that is exactly what we have before us this morning. The falsity of the practice. Not only are false teachers teaching false things, but false teachers live falsely because they believe false things. And the falsity of their practice is seen primarily here in Paul's words to the believers in Colossae through the exercise of legalism and mysticism. Legalism and mysticism. I think one of the most important and serious problems facing evangelicalism, even in our own day, are those two issues, legalism and mysticism. And they were the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day, as we will see. So Paul gives three warnings here concerning the falsity of this practice. Three warnings. He, he warns about the damning delusion of legalism in verses 16 and 17. He warns about the damning delusion of mysticism in verses 18 and 19. And then in verses 20 through 23, he warns of the deluding dead end of both. So as, now, I, I, I just want us to think about this because I think it would be wise for us to just take a moment as we begin, to make sure that we understand just exactly what legalism is. Because there's a lot of confusion, I think, that goes on in the evangelical church concerning this issue of legalism. And I don't want us to be confused in our thinking. I want us to, I, I want to just give us some general things to think about as we define legalism. Oftentimes I will hear people say, when someone says, this is what the Bible says, this is how we ought to live, some people will say, well, that's legalism. As if having rules and having standards is the issue behind what legalism is. And I want to I dispel that this morning. Right? That is not legalism. Because when you, when you survey the Bible and you come across the word law in the scriptures, in a generally speaking fashion, and I say generally because, because that's not always the case when it comes to the context, but in a general sense, the word law is talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament in general. Right? When the Jews 
uh, what the Jews called the Torah, if you will, especially the first five books of the Bible or the, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Those were the, the law, right? Penta means five and tuk is the tools or vessels. So these are the five tools or five vessels that you have for understanding God, in other words, the Ten Commandments or even the multiple codes of conduct that identified Israel as God's people are all found in there. Now, when Jesus comes along, he summarizes the law into two main commandments. And we we know of them because they're listed for us in the Gospels. Matthew 22, 34 and following talks about them. And Jesus says these are the greatest commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two in this. The whole law is boiled down. And so Jesus takes the law, he boils it down to a right relationship with God, and therefore out of that right relationship with God, a right relationship with your fellow man. So when you come to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he declares that the entire law, all the requirements of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And through Christ, we who believe in Christ have been set free from the law's penalty of death. And that's the idea. And I don't want to lose us here in all of this, but that's the law, right? And so when we speak of legalism in general, we're talking about the attitude, the inward attitude that identifies morality or outward life, how you live by some strict observance to laws and moral codes as the divining boundary for your morality, right? So it's this external reality going on when we talk about the law. And when you get into a, a, uh, a religious context, right, what we have to understand is that it focuses on obedience, external obedience to laws or moral codes with the assumption that if you do obey those things, then you will receive God's favor in a saving way, in a saving way. So in other words, as long as I do whatever it is I'm supposed to do by way of means of the rules and the codes, then God will reciprocate with his saving love upon me. So live according to the standard of rules, and then you will earn salvation. We get an example of this mindset, by the way, all through the scriptures, but particularly go over to Luke chapter 10 for a moment. Very familiar passage to us. Right? If we think about our storytelling, even to our kids, Jesus telling this parable of the Good Samaritan, beginning in verse 30, but you cannot take that parable out by itself. You have to begin with where Jesus began it, and that was with a conversation that began back in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, a certain lawyer stands up and puts Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's the question of the ages. How can I get into heaven? What can I do in order to 
ensure that I will get into heaven? What is the effort on my part? And Jesus says to him, well, what is written in the law? Jesus wasn't saying to him, listen, the law will save you. Jesus is the one who gave the law. Obviously, he knows that. And Jesus has said that the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So but he asked this lawyer who wants to do something in order to attain eternal life, well, okay, tell me what the law says. How does it read to you? And he answers, and he says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. He quotes to him exactly what Jesus has summarized. And Jesus says, okay, very good. You've answered good. Go do that and live. What is Jesus saying to him? Great, if you want to try to earn salvation by means of your efforts, which is what you're trying to do, then go and do it perfectly. Go and live the law perfectly. You say, well, I'm not sure the guy was trying to do that. I'm not sure he was trying to save himself. Really? Look at verse 29. Wishing to justify himself. The very thing you need before God, justification. Wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, okay, let me go do that. Tell me who my neighbor is. He skips over the first half because obviously in his own heart, he's saying, I already love the Lord my God with all my heart and strength. If I just figure out who the second one is, I'm in. I can do it. Of course, Jesus gives him the parable of the Good Samaritan. At the end of that, what does Jesus say to the man? Which of these three do you think, what? Proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robbers. Right? You had a priest go by. Certainly a priest should have. They're the ones who led Israel spiritually. Certainly they should have loved their neighbor as their self, but they failed to do that. And then you had a, another one go by, a Levite, someone who worked in the temple, someone who did the temple services. Certainly they would have done that because certainly they know the law. But they failed to do that. And then there's this half Jew, a Samaritan who comes by, who every Jew wouldn't have liked, and he's the one who actually is living according to it by means of his own heart. Jesus said, who do you think proved to be a neighbor? And he said, the one that showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, yeah, you go and do the same, knowing, knowing that he wasn't going to do that. No way he could do that. And so this is the whole idea of legalism. This man wanted to live by means of some external factor. If I just do this, then I will have eternal life. And Jesus is articulating clearly that it cannot happen that way because you don't have the ability. You don't have the ability. The issue is already that you're tainted by sin. You could never do it that way. <coughs> And so the issue wasn't that there was a standard by which he should live by. The standard is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. There's a standard. The issue isn't that there's a standard, right? We are to be holy because he's holy. That's a pretty high standard, right? Legalism isn't that there's standards. Legalism is the requirement to live according to those standards in order to be justified. We have a requirement to live by the standards, but not in order to be justified. 
We have a requirement to live by the standards because we are equipped to live by the standards by the Spirit of God through the Holy Spirit. We can do what is honoring to God because He did save us, because we are justified. So keep that as a background in your mind as we look at this first part of this text this morning, this first warning, right? The damning delusion of legalism. Verses 16 and 17. Notice what Paul says. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in, a, in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now you notice the Jews had laws for everything. In fact, they had created more laws on top of the laws that God gave in order to try to justify their continuing failure to keep the law. They had dietary laws that God had given them. You can go back to Leviticus and read through that in Leviticus chapter 11 and Leviticus 17. They had laws for all the feasts and the festivals that were around, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of of Tabernacles back in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy chapter 16. You can read about that. There were laws for the new moon festivals. Numbers 28.11 talks about that. Laws about the Sabbath day and the rules for a Sabbath day journey and all these kinds of things and the ways in which they added upon all of those laws. Everything, though, in the law was a, to be a reminder of God's grace, that God was a gracious God, that while, yes, these are laws, every law that was there was a, was a means of God's grace to show you your need All of God's doing was was an example of Him and how He has rescued, how He brought you out of slavery time and time again, delivering you from the hands of the oppressor in which was a picture, it was a shadow of what was to come in Christ, which was free and eternal rescue. None of it was ever meant to be followed in hopes of gaining some kind of eternal life for ourselves. No one could ever do that. The law was just a tutor, a reminder that the Jew couldn't keep the law. They were failing all the time. I don't know about you, but I I feel like that every time I open the Scriptures, don't you? I mean, you open the Scriptures, you read the Scriptures, and you realize how short you have come up to the law of God. And praise God for the grace of God in Christ, right? If that wasn't there, it would be utterly crushing. A couple of us guys were talking this morning before elders prayer and I said that's crushingly soothing to know that. It's crushingly soothing to know that in Christ there is forgiveness. That every day is a day of grace. Every second is a second of grace. For if we did not stand in grace we would have no hope. And yet here we are. Here we are, just like the Jew. The law of God calls us up short and we run to God and we ask for forgiveness and we we rest and bask in the forgiveness found in Christ. And they had the laws and they had all of this and there were those there who were saying, listen, you've got to keep that in order to be right with God. In order to, to have salvation before God, you have to be there. You have to do that. Paul is saying, listen, if you are complete in Christ, And you are by faith, he says. And don't let anyone come and judge your salvation by a standard of legalism. Don't let them do that. Don't let them make a determination about your eternal destiny as to whether or whether or not, based on you've kept the law, 
Because if that's the reality, none of us are getting in. You never will get in. The perfect requirement is just that. It is perfect. And even on our best day, we fail. I said to the guys this morning, which one of us this very day has not already sinned enough to condemn us to hell? Thinking overtly, covertly, whatever it is, even the smallest of sin would cast us into an eternity of hell were it not for Christ. Listen, beloved, that's the damning delusion of legalism. Legalism says if you'll just keep a set of rules and a set of standards, then you'll be saved. Not true. Never will be true. Listen, legalism is just a word for the religion of human achievement. That's all it is. It's a word for the religion of human achievement. It says that your salvation is based on Jesus plus you. Jesus plus your efforts. Legalism just makes conformity to some kind of law the measure of your salvation rather than faith in Christ. It's always about faith in Christ. Let's listen to Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. He finished it. In other words, he's the climax, he's the finisher, he's the completer. He's put an end to the law and put an end to the penalty of the law. So if the Colossians were to become wrapped up in a legalistic system of rules for gaining salvation, they would just be damned. Paul says, look, you're complete in Christ already. Don't go, don't, don't go to the rules for your means of salvation. That's just a delusion. That's a damning delusion. Don't go there. But we, but we have to be careful, don't we? We have to be careful because oftentimes what happens when we hear that is we go, oh man, that's so freeing. And we swing the pendulum so far the other direction that we let our Christian liberty become a license to sin. We just go, man, I'm not damned by the law so I can do whatever I want to do. And we go sinning because after all, grace is grace, isn't it? We can't do that. We're not free to do whatever we'd like to simply because we live under grace. We have a standard. You know what the standard is? Our standard has a name. His name is Jesus. That's our standard. We are to live like He did. We are to be like Christ. Philippians 2 says, Have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We have to have this attitude of self-sacrifice rather than an attitude of self-service. That's the attitude we are to have. Our Christian liberties are to be regulated by self-sacrifice. In other words, when it comes to my Christian liberties, I restrain my Christian liberty at whatever time it's necessary to restrain my Christian liberty. I restrain my Christian liberty in order to protect the weaker Christian brother or sister or when my collective testimony concerning Christ might be negatively impacted when others see me. I have to restrain my Christian liberties in those ways. When others look at my life and they see the world, 
Because of my exercise of Christian liberties, I need to restrain that. I need to exercise self-control. Self-sacrifice. I don't want to go into in-depth into all that. If you want in-depth study into all that, you can go back to our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 8-10 through 10, where we talked at length about that, or even Romans 14-15. Gives you a lot of examples of how to restrain yourself. Suffice it to say that simply this, we must be restraining ourselves when it comes to our Christian liberties, even though we are free from the law. So back here in Colossians chapter 2, the false teachers are saying to the Colossian believers, look, you need, you need more than just Christ. You, you, you claim salvation, but you need more than Christ. You, that, that's good. That's, that's, that's on the road. But, but you need to continue to keep the rules as well if you're going to be saved. You need to do all these things that, that we have as rules. Paul says, notice verse 17, these things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Or the substance is of Christ, is the idea. Christ is the substance. In other words, all of these externals, all of these things on the outside are just a reflection of the real. They're a reflection of what what is the cause, and that is Christ. Uh, That's all they are. They're not the reality. They're not what saves you. They're just a reflection of what has saved you, and that is Christ. Paul's point really is pretty simple, isn't it? True salvation and Spirituality doesn't come from keeping externals. True salvation and true spirituality don't come, they're not produced by, they're not the product of keeping all these externals. No, those things come, those things are the outworking only of having a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith because in Him you're complete. Everything else... If you believe there's salvation in all of those things, that's just a damning delusion of legalism. That's all it is. And it can be very subtle. Be very subtle. It doesn't have to be big things and and all, all these rules are out there. Sometimes we place ourselves under that and we get this idea that somehow God loves me if I do A, B, or C. And I'm here to say this morning that God cannot love you any more than He already has loved you in Christ if you know Christ. He has loved you to the maximum He can love you. Should you obey? Yes, it honors and pleases the one who loves you in Christ. But God does not hate you in some way or devalue you in some way if you fail. That's just the damning delusion of legalism. Let's look at the second thing, the damning delusion of mysticism. The damning delusion of mysticism in verses 18 and 19. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you've ever been in my office, you notice I have a few books. 
One of the books I have on my desk that I refer to from time to time is the Theological Dictionary or the Dictionary of Theological Terms. Contrary to some of your belief, maybe I don't remember all the terms, definitions. And so in this dictionary, it gives definitions to theological terms. And the author defines mysticism in this way, and I think it's a good definition. It says, quote, mysticism... It is the belief and practice that seeks a personal experiential knowledge of God by means of a direct, non-abstract, which how they would identify faith, faith is not a a concrete, it's an abstract, a non-abstract and loving encounter or union with God. Let me read that again. Mysticism is the belief and practice that seeks a personal experiential knowledge of God by means of a direct, non-abstract, and loving encounter or union with God. What is he saying? Well, he's saying this. Mysticism is based on a deeper and higher religious experience apart from your natural senses. Mysticism, in other words, looks for a relationship with God from how you feel on the inside. It defines that relationship by my own feelings and my own impressions. In other words, it's self-authenticating. It is, it is unverifiable because it's subjective. How do I know what kind of feelings I'm, or what's producing the feelings that I might be having? It's subjective. It's unverifiable. And it usually includes, by the way, claims to have had some special dream or some special revelation or some vision from God. You hear this in the, in the books and, and speeches, I call them, I don't even call them preaching, in the speeches that these people do sometimes on television and otherwise. They say, I, God told me, and then they start to speak something that they had with this special dream or something else. They don't open the Bible and say, here's what God says. <laughs> they say, I spoke to God today. He was standing at the end of my bed, and we were chatting about life. This was the claim of the false teachers that had infiltrated the church in Colossae. They claim to have some kind of mystical relationship with God. So Paul again says here, and he commands the Colossian believers, this is not a command when it says, let no one keep defrauding you. It's just like in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you. This is the same idea. It's a command. This is an imperative. This is something you must do. He says, listen, don't let them judge you or steal your prize. Don't let them do that. It's almost as if these false teachers had become some kind of spiritual rules official, like a, like a referee in a game. They're the, they're the new self-appointed spiritual referee in the game of salvation, if we could even look at it from that perspective. You, you, bro, here's the yellow flag. You're not playing by the rules. You're not doing what's required of you. You're outside the lines. You're disqualified to receive the prize. You're out of the game. You can't be saved. Notice that their rule 
keeping is based on three things. First of all, it's based on false humility. Notice he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Self-abasement. That's just false, uh, uh, false humility. Some of your versions might say asceticism or voluntary humility. Some versions translate it that way. In other words, the false teachers were delighting in the fact of how humble they were. Now think about that. They're delighting and championing the fact that they're really humble people. In other words, they're, they're the ones going out and saying things, listen, you're not good enough to go directly to God. You can't do that. I know you haven't seen visions and all those kind of things. You're not good enough for that. We are. We know what to do. In fact, you'll get closer to God if you just worship the angels. They were worshiping the angels. They say, don't pray to God. You, you're not worthy enough to pray to God. Don't. You can go pray to other people. You go pray to dead saints. You go pray to angels. You're not worthy to go to God. We can. We talk to God. God says to us this. It's false humility. It's false humility. It's really pride masquerading as humility, all dressed up as if it's humility, but it's not. In fact, it was false humility that the Pharisees went to pray in Luke chapter 18. Notice what it says. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector, and the Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector here. False humility. I give twice a week. I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all that I have. I come to the church regularly. I'm there. I mean, I'm the guy. Tax collector's tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner Jesus rightly identifies it he says I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other why because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted that's what the teachers of Colossae were doing they were exalting themselves worshiping angels saying that if you beat yourself you'll be good they're carrying themselves around as if they're spiritual giants acting like they're humble because they were the ones doing these things carrying themselves like the people were the proud ones they were the humble ones we aren't going to think of ourselves good enough for any of that no we worship angels Sure, you think you know God because you read the Bible, but listen, I talk to God. I talk to God. I wrote a book about it. You've got to read it. You've got to cringe anytime somebody says, without going to the Word of God and reading the Word of God, you know, God said to me, you've got to cringe every time you hear that. You've got to be ready. You've got to sit back and wait and say, okay, are they going to quote Scripture or are they going to quote themselves? 
Happens all over the place, folks. You ought to listen for it. This is heresy. Heresy. It's the same heresy plaguing the world of our day. It was bad in that day in Colossae. It's bad in our day. In fact, historians tell us this worship of angels thing. Historians tell us in the sister city of Laodicea, the lukewarm church in Revelation. And it was so bad in Laodicea, there was a good moment in 363 AD, a church council met and declared this. It is not right for Christians to abandon the church of God and go away to invoke angels. Unquote. They knew it was happening. They saw it was happening. So much so that the councils got together and said, look, no one should do this. It's wrong. The problem was huge. Jesus clearly forbids the worship of anything other than God. Satan tried to get him to worship himself in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is being tempted and Jesus declares it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So here you are in the Colossian church. Here you are in the surrounding areas and some are in the Colossian church and they're full of this false humility, worshiping angels instead of God. And notice third, they boast in visions, taking their stand on visions they'd seen, inflated without cause. The phrase Paul uses here, by the way, taking his stand on things he has seen. That's the phraseology of saying this, someone was admitted to a higher plane and you can't get there. They're on a higher level than you. It would be like you or I saying to someone, the reason I understand these things is I'm on the inside when it comes to the things of God. I talk to God directly. I get my own special revelation. Things you're not allowed to get. All unverifiable, of course. All outside the absolute objective truth of God's word. It's a sham. It's all deception. Stay away, Paul says. Stay away. Don't let anyone defraud you. Because these kind of people are puffed up without cause by their fleshly minds. You notice that? They delight in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking their stand on visions that they have seen, inflated without cause by their fleshly mind. That's the cause of it all. That's the root of it. That's the heart behind it. They weren't holding fast to the head. Who's the head? Paul says, and not holding fast to the head in verse 19. Who's the head? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 18, we have the clear statement of it. He is also the head of the body, the church. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. 
That's who the head is. They're inflated in their own mind, not holding fast to the head. There's the problem. Christ is the head. He's the one through whom and for whom the entire body grows. And it's a growth which is from where? It's a growth from God. It's not a growth from us. It's not something produced by us. It's not something that we attain. It's a growth that comes from God because it's God wrought. It's God produced. It's God infiltrated. It's God through and through. We're just the means. We're, we're, we're the, the instruments that, that, that God's using in that way, but He's infused it all by His grace and Christ. You know what Paul's saying here? The false teachers are not at all part of the body of Christ. They're not at all part of the true body of Christ. They had turned their backs on the head. They believed the way to God was through visions and false humility. They were worshiping other created beings. Sounds eerily like Romans chapter 1. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Worshipping the creature rather than the creator. Jesus Christ said in John 15, abide in me. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, you will never know Christ apart from his word. You'll never know Christ apart from his word. He alone is sufficient. He alone is in him alone is salvation. Legalism is a damning delusion. Mysticism is a damning delusion. And then Paul says, thirdly, both of them are dead end street. Both of them are dead end street. Notice verses 20 to 23. If you have died with Christ, and you died to the elementary principles of the world, then why is it as if you were living in the world? Do you submit yourself to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? These all refer to things destined to perish, what they're using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. They're all matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom, wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul says, listen, it's only through your union with Christ that you're set free. Set free from any man-made system of rules for gaining salvation. It's only in Christ. It's in no one else. You can go through all the motions if you want. You can go through all these legalistic systems and mysticisms and all kinds of things. And, and certainly you might appear to be religious and you might appear to have some kind of self-imposed discipline in your life that appears to everybody else to be something that will get you somewhere. But they're of no value. They will not control your fleshly indulgences. They will not. The practice of legalism and mysticism is simply to adopt a worldly system of religion that's based on works, not in Christ. Paul said, Paul's asking the question, why, why do you willingly submit to rules for spiritual gain if you're already complete in Christ? In which way is that helping you become 
more saved than you are. Paul says, it makes no sense. Why are you doing that? People say, don't touch this, don't taste that, don't handle these things, don't do this, don't go this direction, don't do that, all of those things. They look great on the outside. And with the right mindset and an understanding of where justification comes from, they may in fact be okay to do. They appear, though, if you're trying to earn salvation, they appear spiritual, but they have no eternal effect. They'll accomplish nothing. If you're hoping to gain salvation before God when you die by them, the bottom line result will be a big fat zero. They'll add nothing to you. The salvation isn't by those things. Oh, you might stand in front of people. You might speak with all grandiose voices and say you heard God say these things to do and you might appear spiritual before them and you might even write books and be published and be on the New York Times bestseller list and you try to be humble and you try to live by the rules that you set, but they all, none of them satisfy your fleshly desires. None of them. It's only an attempt to appear holy. Try to appear holier than others, and in fact, you're not. You're not at all. You're just the same. But when it comes to your sin, you can beat yourself up if you want to. You can have severe treatment of the body. You can become a monk. You can live in a monastery. You can go into abject poverty. You can sell everything you have and think that that in some way is going to gain something. You can separate yourself from every evil thing that the world brings around. You can isolate yourself to the point of isolation where nothing else is around you, but none of that is going to get you any closer to God because sin in you is what's separating you from God. The problem isn't outside of you. The problem is in you. The problem can only be taken care of at the cross. It's the only place it can be taken care of. It can never be taken care of through any feeble attempt on our part to control our own sinfulness. We'll never gain salvation through some kind of self-effort or self-denial. Only when we truly know God by faith. And then, when we know God by faith, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us to be a self-denier. We deny the fleshly desires because of Christ. This, beloved, is Paul's message to the Colossians. This is his warning to us. We don't need to be intimidated by the falsity of their teaching. And go, oh man, that sounds really big. I don't know how to give an answer to that. Listen, all we got to do is go to the Word of God. We certainly don't need to be intimidated by the falsity of the practice that's produced from the falsity of their teaching. They are, in the words of Peter in 2 Peter, they are clouds without water. Fluffy, maybe pretty on the outside, but they got no substance on the inside. All we have to do is hold fast to Christ. All we have to do is hold fast to Jesus Christ because it's in Him and Him alone that we have been made complete. In Him and Him alone. I don't know if any of you ever read about Eckhart Tolle. 
an author, best-selling author, wrote a book called The Power of Now and a New Earth. Eckhart Tolle says he dedicated much of his life to teaching others how to live in the present moment. They don't think this is going on in our world. His message has reached millions who are looking to transform their lives and evolve to higher consciousness. Where did he come from? Well, he was born in Germany in 1948, educated in the University of London in Cambridge, says he suffered from bouts of depression and suicidal thoughts until, until he experienced a profound inner transformation at age 29. You read that and go, oh, well, what happened? During this transformation, he says, he became aware that his feelings of sadness, dread, and fear were all part of his ego, and one morning he awoke to find that his ego had dissolved and life was fresh and beautiful and his mind free of constant mental chatter. Can somebody please explain that to me? That sounds like a recipe for a good cookie gone bad. As he's armed with this new perspective on life, Eckhart began teaching spiritual workshops to small groups of people, and in 1999, he published The Power of Now. In 2005, he published A New Earth, and in 2008, here you go, it became an Oprah's Book Club pick. <laughs> and the basis of an exclusive online webcast hosted by himself and Oprah. At the core of his teachings lies the transformation of consciousness, a spiritual awakening that he sees as the next step in human evolution. An essential aspect of this awakening consists of transcending our ego-based state of consciousness. Sounds good, right? The Bible says deny self, right? That's the ego. Listen, you can't love yourself. Well, he's trying to say the same thing. You know, don't love yourself, but it's all in the wrong way. Just get outside yourself. Get outside this ego-based state of consciousness. Transcend that into this newness. Notice this. He's not aligned with any particular religion or tradition. Really? But he draws from many to convey his teachings. Yeah? He draws things from the scriptures and draws things from every other human philosophy of men, every tradition of men, and yet none of it transforms lives. And yet, he goes on to say, he has inspired people around the world to transform their lives. To achieve personal happiness and to contribute to the ending of violent conflict on our planet. Hasn't worked, has it? Millions of people have bought off on the lie. Hasn't worked. It'll never work. The only thing that works is Jesus Christ. Well, we'll get more next time. We'll finish this up next time. Trust me, we will. Let's pray together. Father, Only you can bring enlightenment in the real sense. We don't hear voices. We don't worship spirit beings. 
We worship the living and true God who has given us his revelation about himself, about our Savior Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the creator of all things. And you have even granted us faith to believe. It is not foolishness. It is not irrational. It is born in the only one who has any rationality, and that is you. And so we trust you. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for how it protects us. Help these things guard us as we see to it that no one deludes us, that no one takes us captive, that we fight against the things that we hear and things that we see. Lord, help us to be discerning in the best way. Help us to always run to your word, for it is solid ground, truth, knowing that we can trust it. Thank you for caring for us in this way as a loving Father. Use us for your kingdom's glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.